Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. So, have you ever had the impulse, have you ever impulse bought something? Anyone ever impulse bought something? Yeah, right. Anyone done it this weekend? <laughs> or this week? Or this month? Or this year? Impulse buying. Clothes, doesn't matter what it is, clothes or shoes, power tools, food, maybe something a little bit more significant, a car or a boat, or I don't know how much disposable income you've got, but house, I don't know, I don't even think you can impulse buy a house these days, they, they, they go too quickly. What is it that drives that impulse buying thing? What is that? What is it that drives that sense of needing something more than what we already have in our life? What is that? It's an impulse that comes somehow from deep within us, that somehow, by having that extra thing in our life, whether it's a, a piece of chocolate cake, or whether it's a new phone, the new iPhone 13 Pro Plus came out today, yesterday, something like that, so you can get that one for a low, low price of, of $1,850 if you need a new phone. That's an option if you want to impulse buy that, don't blame me. But at least now you know. There's something within us that tells us that our life would be better with that thing, whatever that thing is in our life. Somehow my life might somehow be like the life of the person I'm seeing in that advert. I see people running along the beach with the chiseled beach bodies drinking a Coca-Cola, which they didn't get by drinking Coke, by the way. Just, just noting. But somehow if I buy that Coke, this is how advertising works, somehow if I buy that Coke then I will have that life or, or a snapshot of it in some way. You probably won't, but that's, you could buy it, but you just can't drink it. There's something about that whole phenomenon of seeing and wanting and feeling like our life is lacking something without having that thing in our life. Does, and when we buy that thing, does it improve our life the way that we thought it would? Does that impulse ultimately satiate us? Well, it, it might for a short time, but the thing is, the impulse always returns. doesn't matter how many power tools you buy, there's always one newer one. Did you know that, you know, that Ryobi just released a new type of battery, so it makes your power tools run longer and stronger? It's always something extra. And if we were looking for that one thing to make our life complete, then it won't be long until we're looking for another thing. What do we call that? that? An impulse that constantly returns. What is that? It's called an appetite. An appetite. A desire, an impulse that constantly returns is never fully satiated is an appetite. Because, well, I, I can eat today and I plan to, already have, and plan to later on as well. 
But I can guarantee you, no matter how much I eat today, I'm always going to be hungry tomorrow. Or if I eat a lot, maybe hungry the next day, or whatever. But you, appetite is that idea of something that, no matter how much we satiate it, it always returns. It always leaves us wanting something. And this concept of an appetite applies to our stuff and our money as well. That we actually have within us an impulse and appetite for money, for stuff. That it doesn't matter how much we buy or how much money we have, there's an appetite within each of us that demands to be satiated. And it's never fully satisfied. And we've seen it. We've all experienced it. And I want to talk about that appetite today throughout our short time together. And I want to talk about what Jesus has to say about that appetite. Because we're in a series called Guardrails, as it says up on the screen. Guardrails, it was a series that we, we drew from a North Point Community Church, and a network partner, and we're a partner church of theirs. And, and throughout this whole series, we've been exploring guardrails and the different concepts and how it applies to our life. But the question I want to start with is, what is a guardrail? If you've been with us for a little while, you already know. But if you haven't been with us, I invite you to go back, particularly those of you joining us online, go back and watch the series because there's a whole bunch of ground I'm not going to cover that's really helpful in framing this idea. But what is a guardrail? A guardrail, quite simply, is a system. A system that's designed to keep us from straying into dangerous areas. We know it happens on the road all the time. They're everywhere. We particularly think of guardrails as it pertains to vehicles, but guardrails also apply to other parts of our life, and that's what we've been looking at over this series. And the thing about guardrails is that the guardrails are always placed in where? The safety zone. That's right. Three of you got that. Well done. Always placed in the safety zone. Why? Because guardrails are designed to keep us safe. We don't place them over the edge of the cliff because that's no good to us at all. We place them in the safety zone. And the thing about our culture is that our culture doesn't appreciate guardrails. Why? Because when you place a guardrail in a safety zone, it seems as though it's impinging on our freedoms. And our culture's got a big issue with apparent freedom and what that actually means in the rhythm of our daily life. But as we've discovered, guardrails are actually the key to true freedom. Because some of our greatest regrets, as we look back over our life, some of the greatest, and, uh, greatest problems, greatest senses of suffering, and greatest regrets, greatest sources of shame that we have in our life, if we're honest, actually come from places where we could have avoided pain through guardrails. By having guardrails in our life, we could have avoided, if we're honest, some of the greatest sources of pain and shame that we've ever experienced. The last thing that I wanted to talk about just in terms of this introducing this concept of guardrails is the thing about guardrails is that they are unique to you, each one of you. Guardrails are unique to you. Because I can offer some wise suggestions, I can offer what Scripture has to say about a given ethic or, or, or a given idea, and offer some helpful insights, but ultimately it's your life. I don't get up here and necessarily, my heart is not to tell you what to do, 
My heart is to present a picture of what a transformed life through the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like, and then you make up your mind for yourself if that's a life that you want to be a part of. That's my role as a preacher, as a proclaimer of the gospel. And so when we talk guardrails, I'm not adding a bunch of rules to your life. I'm presenting a picture of what a a transformed life could look like, and then it's up to you to figure out what your guardrails are. But I just offer some suggestions. And the reason is that my stage of life is not like yours. I'm a 35-year-old guy. I'm married. I have two young children. I'm a pastor full-time. And so my rhythm of life looks a whole lot different to you. If you're a, if you're a professional, if you're someone that has is, is got you know, two incomes and no kids in the house anymore, if you're a retiree, if, you're, if, you, um, uh, if you were married but now you're a widow or a widower, or you might be, have been single your whole life, whatever your rhythm, your guardrails around this stuff are going to look unique and different. So the invitation is to just consider it and figure out where it fits for you. And so over this, these last four weeks, Angus introduced in the first week the, series, the idea of guardrails. Kath talked about guardrails as it pertains to our friendships. Last week, I preached about sex marriage, and wise choices. Probably one of the harder sermons I've preached lately, if I'm honest, and hadn't planned for it to be the first one that I preached after coming back from leave, but hey. And so this week, I'll talk about my second favorite topic to preach on. So I've talked about sex last week, so I'm going to talk about money this week. How's that sound? We're going to talk about guardrails as it pertains to our finances. And one of the, one of the challenges that people struggle with, I would say... Let me reframe this. Many of the challenges, if I'm honest with you, many of the challenges that you and I encounter in our life and that our broader culture encounters in everyday life have to do with sex and they have to do with money. And the way both of those, the way that we as people have a tendency to place either of those two things in the center of our life. And what's fascinating about our culture is that our culture whilst acknowledging that those two things are a big issue in our life, largely ignore what the New Testament has to say about both of those things. And as we've discovered, if we take the wisdom of the New Testament seriously, we can avoid a great many of the the struggles that we have in our everyday life around these two issues. So, financial guardrails, as we talk about it today, is simply answering this one question. Do you control your money, or does your money control you? It's a simple question with a not-so-simple answer. Do you control your money, or does your money control you? And Jesus, when we look to Scripture, Jesus teaches about money more than just about anything else in all of Scripture. In all of the teachings that we have recorded in in the Gospels, Jesus teaches about money more than just about anything else. The only thing he references more is actually the kingdom and, and illustrates that through the parables. And as we read those teachings, what we do is we discover a common theme from Jesus about, about money. And the theme is that money, more than anything else, has the capacity to be our master in our life. Sex is pretty high up there, but money is actually higher. The money and stuff and the things that we pursue in our life around gathering stuff to ourselves is on the highest on the pecking order as far as the things that compete with God for our heart. 
Money more than anything else has the capacity to be our master. And it's the reason that you and I are never actually rich. Is anyone rich? No. I've never seen anyone put up their hand for that, by the way. No one's ever rich. Why? We know people that are rich, don't we? You know some people that are rich. I know some people that I would consider rich. But why are we never rich? Hang on. Why are we never rich? What is that? What an interesting thing. Why is it that we are never rich? Because what is rich? What would you need to be financially secure in your life? Just a question, real quick. How much would you need to be financially secure and consider yourself rich? If you think about how much you earn or what you've got going on, the answer, roughly, as far as that, you know, they've done surveys around this sort of stuff, and it seems to be the answer is something in and around $10,000 more than I earn right now. So you, if you earn $50,000 a year, what does it take for you to be rich and to be comfortable financially? Well, Josh, if I earn $60,000 a year, I reckon I'd be pretty, pretty good. That should, be, should set me up pretty nicely and give me a bit of margin and things like that. But then when we get to $60,000 a year, suddenly we've spent that and now we need 70. And then we need 80. And then we need 90. And then for those that get to earn six figures, God bless you, then it gets to 100. And our spending tracks with our income. Not because we don't have enough, but because in some way, money becomes the center of our life and our existence. And we never quite satisfied. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this passage. And hopefully it, it rocks up on the screen. If it doesn't, if you've got a Bible with you, on your phone or whatever, you can, uh, you can follow along. So Matthew chapter 6, starting verse 19 through to verse 33. I'll read it for you. Do not store up for yourselves. Do not store up for yourselves, this is Jesus talking, treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not, do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Jesus begins this talking about, about finances and about money in a really practical way. He says, well, you know how it works. If all your money's in grain, all it takes is a bunch of rats and your, money's, and, and your wealth is gone. If, you, if your money is in all your wealth and your, your hopes and dreams is in your jewelry, all it takes is someone to break into your house, which is easier than you think, by the way, and... Take all your stuff, because thieves can come in and take it. But he says, instead of putting your hope there, you need to put your hope in something else. And he, he, he describes it as putting your, your he says, um, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin can't destroy it. The reason he mentions moths there is that uh, his fabric in, in the ancient, ancient world was incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive. And so for us to put our, our hope in our fancy clothes, which none of us do that, by the way, do we? 
None of us love clothes so much we go out and buy them when we've already got a closet full of them, do we? We've never done that. Looked at your closet and gone, I've got nothing to wear. No. No, none of us have done that. We don't do that. Others do, but you guys don't. We put our hope in that stuff. Jesus says it lets us down. We've got to put our hope in something different. And he calls it putting your tr- hope in your treasures in heaven. He, he goes on to say your treasures, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus introduces this idea by saying, it's not actually about the money. It's about your heart. It's about what your center is. Because the money is going to be transient. So Jesus suggests that there's something else that we need to put our hope in that is more eternal. He continues. He says, the eye, of the, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now he's talking metaphor, understanding of the ancient world and the way that the body worked in the ancient world, or the ancient world's understanding of it. So if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus here is actually talking about focus. If we focus on things of the light, we become filled with the light. When we focus on the things of the darkness, we become filled with the darkness. What we focus on is ultimately connected to our life and and, and the fruitfulness of our life. We can't entertain ourselves with or covet or focus on money without it having a significant implication on the rest of our life, seems to be what Jesus is saying. And he explains what he means. He says, no one, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, hang on, Jesus. I'm not a slave. Am I? It, by God's grace, slavery is a thing of the past in our world, as far as an institution is concerned. It was certainly very real in New Testament times. And Jesus uses that observation, an observation of the culture around him, to paint a very, very vivid picture. Because you can't be owned by two people, can you? No, you can't. And two people can't own the same thing fully. Because at some point, it's going to clash. At some point, if, you, if two people own a car and you both consider that the car is yours, what happens when you both want to use it at the same time? It doesn't work. The car can't be owned. If we, if we put ourselves in the, in the car's position, the car can't be owned by two different people and serve both equally or serve both at the same time. It can't be done. So the car can't be owned by two different people and so therefore it either serves one or the other. And the same is true, Jesus says, in verse, the end of verse 20, 24. You cannot serve both God and money. 
You, I, we cannot serve both God and not the devil. doesn't mention the devil. doesn't mention the enemy. He says, money. You and I cannot serve God and money. We can hold them in tension for a little while, but sooner or later, we're called to make a choice as to what we're going to have as a priority. And if we're honest, if God were to ask us to give up a significant amount of our money, would we do it or would we not? And Jesus paints a super clear picture. He says, well, you, you can't play both sides. You either say, God, I'm for you, and you can do what you like with my money. Or, God, oh, God I'm sorry, <laughs> money's where it's at for me. And you can ask, you can ask to touch anything else in my life, and, and, that, and I'll, I'll serve you in whatever way I can, but my money's mine. Jesus says, you can't have it both ways. You serve one or the other. And Jesus knows something in this moment that, that we often fail to recognize. And as I mentioned before, it's that money and stuff, and the stuff that money promises, is the primary competitor for our heart with God. So the primary question we need to ask ourselves, as I said, is, are we the master of our money? Or is our money mastering us? Does our money have, um, have mastery over us? And I believe in, in my experience as a pastor and also personally, if money remains the center of our life, if money remains the center, if it's what we are for, if it's what we exist to gather to ourselves, if stuff and pursuing stuff is central, it's really quiet in here today. Hmm. If money remains the center of our life, in my experience, in my observation, we head one of two directions. We either head down and fall off the cliff of satisfaction. We fall down an endless cliff of consumption, an endless cycle of upgrading. We get the newest phone, we get the newest cars, we get, we get a bigger house that we don't need. You know, we buy a bigger TV when our other one works fine. We, when, we, one of the, when, when money's the center of our life, we either head off the cliff of satisfaction, where we use money to try and satisfy that hunger in our life, to satisfy ourselves. But what, are we, what have we already discovered about that? Is that it's, 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 a, it's an appetite. It's never satiated for long before it needs to be satiated again. And so we end up down this rabbit hole of endless consumption and we find ourselves working to buy the next thing. A, and so we can find ourselves off the cliff of consumption, in, on, off the cliff of satisfaction. Or the other direction that we can go, instead of if we're driving down the road, instead of, of driving off the cliff, instead we turn right and hit the wall. The, the cliff wall. And the cliff wall is the security. It's becoming driven by the, by the fear that we will ha never have enough to be secure in our life. And so instead of driving off the cliff of satisfaction, we, we drive into the wall of insecurity. Because have you ever asked yourself that question? 
Or have you ever had that inclination in your life of, if only I had this, then I would be secure enough and wouldn't have to worry? Have you ever told yourself that? I've told myself that. It can be money, it can be stuff, whatever. We never have enough to be truly secure. So when money remains the center, we either pursue it for satisfaction or we pursue it for security. And both of those things can be traced back to a key word that you and I don't like. It's called greed. It's greed. Pursuing money and stuff for our own satisfaction or for our own security is actually called greed. And now you're offended by that, I can tell. Because you're like, Josh, you've just called me greedy. And I've got to tell you, I have a tendency to be greedy too. Because I, I, I found a really interesting definition of greed. And Andy Stanley, who originally um, taught this series over in Atlanta, he, he coined a phrase which is really interesting but really helpful in terms of defining greed for us. He defines greed as the assumption that it's all for my consumption. It even rhymes, which of course it does. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. If somehow it lands in my hands, it must be for me. If it lands in my hands, it must be for me to have. And it's either consumption now, satisfaction, satiates the desire, it's for me now, or it's consumed later, security. I need this to protect my future. It's for me later. It's either for me now, or it's for me later. And Jesus enters into that specific sort of paradigm when he asks a long rhetorical question as he continues this, so you can't serve God and money, brings all these issues up in our life. And Jesus then asks a long rhetorical question as he continues his teaching. He says, therefore, seems like he changed the subject, but he doesn't. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry. Jesus, we're talking about money. What are you, what are you talking about? Don't worry. He says, don't worry about your life. In the answer to security, satisfaction, he says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you will drink, or about your body or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Although you need to wear some. Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow? They do not sow or reap. Or store away in barns, security. But yet the heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you add a single minute to your life by worrying about it? No, worry only robs you of your life. So then why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers are in the fields. They do not labor, they do not spin. Yet, I tell you that even Solomon, King Solomon, the richest person in Israel's history, in all of his splendor, 
was not dressed like one of these. Not even Solomon was as good looking as those flowers. And what a beautiful season that we are in now. We're seeing them blossom everywhere. And if that's how God clothes the flowers in the fields, which is here, which they're here today and then they're gone tomorrow, they only last for a short season. If that's how God clothes them, well, then tomorrow they're thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after that sort of thing. And your heavenly Father already knows you need that stuff. Jesus in this moment paints a picture for us of what life is like with money at its center and as its hope. With money and stuff at our center, he paints a picture of endless worry. Always being worried about it. But I find it so interesting that he contrasts our journey, our life, and the, our ability to reap and sow and to, to store up things for ourselves and go out and buy stuff, he contrasts that with two really quite, I guess, plain um, pictures. One is of like birds and the other is of flowers. And, and it got me thinking about this. We are unique, humanity. We are unique in the sense that we have free will. We have the ability to believe in things. And that is unique across all of creation. And and it means that we are unique because we get to uniquely decide what's at the center of our life, don't we? We do. We decide every day, every moment. And so Jesus, in a sense, I've never noticed this before. I've taught this passage like maybe 10 times. I've never noticed this before. Jesus contrasts something that doesn't have the ability to do anything but... Put God at its center. The flowers have God at their center. No choice. The birds have God as the center of their world. No choice. Just a simple reality. And with God at their center, they are looked after. And so then he asks us the question, why are you worried? Because if, if like the birds and, and, and the flowers, you have God at your center, you have a choice. But if he's, if he's there, then you don't have to worry either. You will never lack. Now, that's a bold promise. But you and I, friends, we are of more value. We are than anything in all of creation. That's a bold thing to say, and there'll probably be someone that takes exception to that. But you and I are made in God's image, humanity. We have a unique role in the world. Doesn't mean we get to abuse the world. Let me be really clear about that. But we are unique. Made in God's image. So the Heavenly Father knows our needs and desperately wants to provide for them. And the rhythm that He has offered for us is that He is at the center so that we will never lack. And He continues. So Jesus recommends, instead of striving after all of that stuff, Worrying about it, or striving about having money and security and consumption at the center of your world, Jesus recommends a different thing. And he says, But seek first his kingdom 
verse 33. But seek first His, that is God's kingdom, God's rhythm, God's way, God's rhythm of life, and His righteousness. And all things, all these things, all that you will ever possibly need, not want, but need, will be given to you as well. So when we make God the center of our life, not our money, not our finances, you'll have everything you need and you will also have peace. And Jesus has already teaches elsewhere that He gives peace not as the world would give it, a peace that can be taken away by circumstance. Instead, He says, I'll give you a peace, an everlasting peace. And so that's the hint that tells us when Jesus says, don't worry, He says, it's because you'll have a peace no matter how much money you've got. Because your peace will be connected not to your income and your bank account and how much stuff you've got. Instead, it will be connected to the God that created you, loves you, and called you for a purpose that is more wonderful than anything you could ever imagine. He gave His life for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. So how do we stay on the road? How do we stay on the road and not fall off the cliff of satisfaction or hit the wall of security when it comes to our finances? And the answer is guardrails. Guardrails. Makes good sense, doesn't it? Guardrails stop you driving off a cliff and guardrails stop you from hitting the wall. And so there's got to be some guardrails that are helpful for us when it comes to our finances and making them a priority in our life. And now I'm not a financial manager. I'm going to put that up front. I'm a pastor, not an accountant. And Eloise, my wife, manages the finances in our house. And I'm grateful that that is the case because she's better at it than me. She's got a degree in accounting and business, so she should do that sort of thing. So when it came to the practical side of, so that's great, Josh, what do you want us to do with all of this? When it came to that, I spoke to her because it's far better that she speaks some hope and life into this reality than me, because she knows more about it than I do. So when it comes to creating guardrails in our life about our finances, about keeping our finances and our stuff in the right place as far as priority and centering goes, these are three guardrails, I think, that help us to ensure that we are the master of our money rather than our money mastering us. Now, I know you, I, can't, I can tell you can't wait for these. So here we go. And you might already do some of these. These might already be here for you. But like I said before, these are some suggestions which I think would be helpful about the wise management of finances. So here we go. First one. To help to ensure that money is not the center of our life. Firstly, I would suggest, or Eloise would suggest, know where your money goes. Do you know where all your money goes? Really? Because in my experience, if you don't know where something's going, you can't control it. You can't. If you've got no sense of, if you, if you know how much money you earn, but then you don't know what you actually end up spending it on, you just know that you get to the end of the working week or the end of the pay week and you've got nearly nothing left... Then, then that's an indicator that the money is controlling you. You're not controlling your money because you don't even know where it goes. And so one of the simplest, you don't even have to change anything. 
one of the simplest and most important things for us to do when it comes to making sure we have mastery over our money is knowing where it goes. One of the most powerful tools of change about anything in your life is awareness. Want to lose some weight? Figure out how much you actually eat. Because if you don't realize that you're smashing 10 Tim Tams a day, and, and you feel like you're on a diet, you, you, could say you're, you could say you're on a diet, but if you've forgotten all the snacks that you ate throughout the day, there's no way you're going to lose weight. Why? Because you're not even aware that you need to be in a, a calorie deficit. Or, you know, talk nutrition another day. I know Kath's passionate about that too. One of the most powerful tools of change is awareness. So when we realize that we're spending three times as much money on takeout each month as we are saving, it tells us something really significant about our priorities. When, when we spend five times as much on entertainment subscriptions like Netflix and, and, and what is, Stan and Spotify and all the other ones you've never heard of, some of you, when we spend so much of our time and money on those entertainment subscriptions so much more than we end up giving into the church offering or giving away to people that need it in our community. It tells us something about our priorities. So knowing where your money goes is the most important thing of anything when it comes to getting this stuff right. Second one, develop a financial rhythm where you are not first. That's key. Develop a financial rhythm where you are not the most important thing in your budget. Seems a bit counterintuitive. You're like, Joshua, my budget exists for me. Because if I don't have a budget, then I can't eat. If I don't budget my money, then I can't have clothes to wear. But what I'm saying is, when it comes to your budget, how about you don't be first for a change? Because if we're first, that tells us the first thing that crosses our mind is what we're going to spend our money on for either our satisfaction or our security what if there was a different rhythm what if now that you already know how much you spend and where it goes what if you had a different rhythm that looked a little bit something like this give save live on the rest give save live on the rest one of the greatest biblical rhythms around giving, Jesus teaches it, the principle of the tithe, is that we give our first and our best and invite God to bless the rest. And so what if in our finances, one of the guardrails that's, that could be there for us is to make giving our first part of what we do? Now, there's the principle of the offerings and tithes and that sort of thing, but there's also other ways that we can give to the things that we believe in. So I'm not even saying that you need to give first to our church, if you're joining us online, you might go to a different church. Give there. Or you might be other things in our organization that you believe in that you want to give to as well. But what do you give first? But then you've got to save. We've got to save something at some point. It's important to save, to have margin in our life for when things don't go the way we want them to. But what if instead of spending first, we gave, but we saved a little bit? The rhythm that we sort of have in our life is that we give our first 10% and a bit, 
depending on what's, what else we find that we have needs for, but we give our first 10%, and then we save roughly 10% or thereabouts in terms of putting it away for different things, girls' schooling for the future, because we know that we're going to have to pay for that at some point. And so we, we save, and then we live on the rest. And suddenly, this part, which is about consumption, this part, which is about meeting our needs, is far less than everything. It's whatever we've got left. And our, our life and our rhythm and our, our living to our means is measured by 80% or just under that, than 100%. And what does that do in our life? Well, if we've already given away some and we've already saved some, then it's actually telling us that we're putting our hope not in this, but we're putting our hope in something bigger than that. We're putting our hope in God. It does something extraordinary in our life when we're generous with what we have. It'll, it unlocks the grip that money has and stuff has over our heart. It's quite an extraordinary thing. When we're generous first, it unlocks the grips on our heart. So my second guardrail would be a suggestion to develop a, a rhythm of finances that instead of consumption and give from your leftovers, instead give, save for margin, live on the rest. That's my second one. Third one, quite simply is this, see it for what it is. See it for what it is. What do you mean, Josh? Well, money is a gift and money is a tool. That's what it is. It's not a master and we're not its slave. Money is actually, never in, in Scripture does, God, does Jesus actually say money is bad. No, no, not, not anywhere in, in any of Scripture do we get told that money is actually a bad thing. It's a blessing from God. It's a part of the economies that, we're a, that we are a part of. He's, what's criticized is the love of money. So when we see it for what it is, not something to be served, not something to strive for, not something to make center of our life, but instead a tool to be used, a gift that is given to us for our good and for the good of those around us. It loses its power over us. When we see that it's actually not ours, it's God's, and God entrusts it to us to bring life to the world, to bring joy and fulfillment in our life too. But it's just a tool. It's just something that exists for us to use. It doesn't exist to use us and manipulate us. So three guardrails. Know where your money goes. Give, save and live. And see it for what it is. Are three very humble suggestions <laughs> that I've got for you around getting this right. Because we know that Jesus was right about this. The money is not our greatest source of hope. Jesus is. And Jesus gave up his life on a cross for us. He gave, up, he gave us what we, could, we cannot find anywhere else. Sal salvation and a right standing before God. 
something to permanently fill that hole in our life, that appetite that we try and fill with all sorts of things. We keep trying to fill it with that. But Jesus gave us something to fill it, himself. A free gift of grace given by God that nothing else in this life can buy for us. It comes through faith and through trust in Jesus as our Lord and through nothing else. So Jesus offers a life of hope, meaning, purpose, and satisfaction that money promises but never, ever can actually deliver on. So, do you control your money? Or does your money control you? Guardrails, I believe, can help us get this right and discover a life of peace, not, not as the world gives it, but as Jesus gives it. And that we might, we might experience, and my hope and my dream for you is that when we get this right, we might experience the true and lasting satisfaction that Christ has in mind for each of us. So let's pray. Loving God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it speaks hope and life and meaning into us. And Lord, we know that this is a hard one to get right because you were right. Money competes with you in our life. Stuff competes with you. But Lord, you paint such a clear picture of what happens when we don't get this right. And we know it. We actually know it. Because we've seen it and we've experienced it. So Lord, help us to figure out the guardrails that we need in our life. Whether it's things we've talked about today or something else. And if we don't have the skills, Lord, give us the wisdom to reach out to someone who does to help us succeed in this. Because, Lord, we don't want money at the center. We actually want you. Because you're the one that promises life and can actually deliver it. So, Lord, would you give us the grace to receive that which we've heard today, the courage to live it out. In your name we pray. Amen.